Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with Morris, Manning and Martin taking a look at the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on captive insurance specifically in the United States. Over the next 15 minutes I will be joined by some familiar names and voices from previous episodes. They are Joe Holohan, attorney with the insurance and reinsurance practice at law firm Morris, Manning and Martin, and Skip Myers, partner and senior counsel within the same practice at Morris, Manning and Martin. We also hear from Tony Benedetto, CEO of NASW Assurance Services, which runs the Captive and Risk Retention Group for the National Association of Social Workers. The three of us discuss the lawsuits already appearing as a result of the pandemic, the current state of risk retention groups during the crisis and how they are impacted or not by state mandates. And Tony gives us some great first-hand insight into some of the challenges NASW is having to overcome. So, Joe, at the start of the pandemic, we recorded a podcast discussing what types of claims and and claims disputes we expected might arise in the following months. Now we're more than six months into the pandemic. We've been through various phases, I think, of of the pandemic in terms of lockdowns and coming out of lockdowns. What what types of lawsuits are being filed now uh, based on COVID-19 exposures? Well, they they run the gamut, um, you know, by by latest count, there have been some something like six thousand lawsuits filed uh, that involve COVID-related claims. Um, a lot of those are are insurance claims. Many of them are involve long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and other healthcare uh, facilities. Um, and then some of them also involve conditions of employment or other, you know, exposure or, or alleged exposure-related claims. On the insurance side, a lot of those claims are bus- are for business interruption losses. And the case, the cases that are coming out in that area are running pretty strongly against recognizing uh, uh, the coronavirus as a, a trigger for business interruption losses. You know, you, under most property forms, you have to show some physical damage, physical loss or damage to property before the, the time element coverage for business interruption losses will, will respond. And the, the cases are, are um, generally the courts are finding that just the presence of, of the virus um, at a facility or in the community generally is not enough to show, show physical loss or damage. All right. Yeah, that is definitely a, that is definitely a theme that we're seeing as well on this side of the Atlantic in the UK coming up in some of these some of these lawsuits and some of these claims. Now, one of the and related to that, one of the big talking points in, in the US has been whether businesses can or should be liable for staff or customers uh, when contracting or supposedly uh, contracting coronavirus at their premises. Have we seen states and or federal laws granting businesses immunity from certain from these certain types of claims and and if so, what impacts would that be having on the kind of claims environment? Yeah, we have. A number of states have, have enacted fairly broad um, legislation that, that grants limited immunity from civil claims to, to businesses, healthcare facilities, product manufacturers, um, so long as they're following state and federal guidelines relating to, to COVID-19. Don't know yet exactly, you know, it, it's too early probably to tell what impact those suits will have. The plaintiff's bar is creative, and, and generally those laws um, would, don't cover a business for gross negligence or willful misconduct. Um, so 
So, you know, that will be the avenue that, that plaintiff's attorneys pursue to try to, to recover, um, uh, you know, these claims, notwithstanding the fact that a state may have a, 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 a law on the books that grants some, some immunity. There's um, some federal legislation as well, and um, there's, there's the PREP Act that, um, that uh, applies to healthcare providers and others who are, are authorized to administer preventative measures um, against the virus. Um, and then there's, there's uh, federal legislation under consideration, the Safe Work Act, which also would, would, would um, provide a fairly broad grant of immunity. Yeah, cheers, Joe. And I'm not wanting to get too too stuck into the, the politics of the moment, but I understand that if some of the kind of COVID relief packages that have been discussed and might be on the on the floor in, in Congress, some of them do and some of them don't include providing that kind of uh, those kind of clauses which would remove the liability from employees. Is, is that correct? That some those that kind of legislation is under consideration at the moment? That's right. But as you know, those that legislation is is all badly mm, in yeah. Congress and it doesn't look like like that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, certainly one to watch in, in a very fast-changing environment. Well, I'm really pleased we got Skip Myers with us as well uh, for this podcast because Skip obviously is the uh, all-seeing eye when it comes to authority on risk retention groups, Skip, and it's great to have you with us. H- how have the RRGs been impacted by the pandemic and, and how have they applied? Are there, have there been any state mandates that have been needed to apply due, due, due to COVID-19? Well, Richard, yes, there there have been mandates or directives or notices from uh, 48 states. Uh, only Wyoming and uh, South Dakota have not provided uh, this kind of uh, require these kind of requirements. And some states, let's say California, for instance, have uh, has uh, done several. You know, I think I think five different releases about what uh, property casualty companies should or should not do. And and uh, just just to sort of summarize what the states have been looking at, you know, they are they are among other things filings uh, for payments should be uh, deferred. In other words, uh, the uh, individuals should are, are are allowed to defer for payments. There should be. Uh, and, and other states have have asked for uh, prohibition of cancellation of uh, of policies as a result of, you know during a certain period of time. Midterm premiums uh, should be adjusted. Uh, and and so on and so forth, and they they go on regarding settlement practices and a whole variety of things. However, risk retention groups all fall under the Liability Risk Retention Act, which is a federal law, and the federal law preempts the state law, except uh, to the extent that the state law might be, uh, as is relevant in this case, in the the state law relating to unfair claim settlement acts or unfair trade practices act, but effectively. All of these uh, state uh, directives are preempted by the federal law, and that is the position that RRGs have taken, and there really hasn't been much pushback. So I think the the, uh, discussion about RRGs is pretty short. It's basically RRGs have have decided not to be required to obey these uh, directives, and and therefore they're sort of uh, out of the game at this point. Yeah, and I imagine we're going to talk to Tony in a second, but I imagine, Skip, that just like any insurers, there'll be some RRGs that have seen more claims activities related as a relate as a as a result of COVID, and some that will have had quite a lot quieter years because of different kinds of economic activity has gone down. They've probably seen less claims activity. So is that the case? with kind of a bit of a wait and see period for the next twelve months to see how the pandemic has impacted RRGs more broadly. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it all depends on the type of uh, liability insurance that. Uh, mm. 
RRG issues, you know, some are more likely to be to result in claims or settlements than than others. So, you know, given the fact that there is this this shield for RRGs, RRGs are basically in a sit and wait position. So yeah, let's bring Tony Benedetto in, and, and listeners should know Tony. Tony appeared in uh, GTP twelve all the way back in in I think it must have been August twenty nineteen. We were actually together in the same room. Tony, it feels like a long time ago now. Um, yes, it does. It does indeed. Um, how has the pandemic impacted upon on your captive and NASW assurance services? And perhaps just if you could give us a very very brief. Uh, background for those who may not have heard you before on uh, what the National Association of Social Workers is and, and, and uses its captive for. Sure. Well, National Association of Social Workers is the largest social work uh, association in the United States, and we provide professional liability to that group, as well as social workers who are not members and most recently expanding into behavioral health. So uh, we've got a fairly large group. What we've seen uh, early on in the pandemic is that uh, the social workers moved from, as you might imagine, practicing therapy from in-person to virtually. So uh, the demand not only stayed where it was, but accelerated. And luckily, the supply of behavioral health and social workers were able to, to keep up with some of that, although I think we'll continue to see it rise for a variety of reasons. So we've been very fortunate as a risk retention group in that the the people we cover are very badly needed. Some other uh, consequences of this that we've seen is because the courts were closed down for a period of time, many of the claims stopped in process. Some new claims were not filed if if it involved the courts. And we did see some acceleration of settlements. So we're waiting now to see if we will, if there was a pen up supply that may begin to move through the pipeline, although we haven't seen that necessarily yet. And we have seen the need for tremendous teletherapy. So we've been fortunate to work a lot on education and other ways to help our insureds uh, move from the in-person setting into the virtual setting. Yeah, that's really interesting, Tony. And I, I imagine that in regards to that that particular telemedicine side or teletherapy side, it, it, has the pandemic kind of acted as an accelerator to trends that you would have already have expected to have been coming down the road, but maybe this has just accelerated a bit like the work from home trend, which obviously that has been accelerated. Is that the case in, in your profession that you cover? I think so. We had seen some people, sort of early adapters, I might describe, moving into teletherapy, so they were able to expand quickly. We did some, we see some uh, some individuals that had not been in that that were moving into that. So we helped by designing some client consent forms and some other online training to help people understand uh, the differences. One interesting uh, behavior that we have observed is that people tend to cancel less in a virtual teletherapy session versus in person. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what that means other than obviously it's a, it's better for the individual that needs the therapy if they're not canceling and it makes the social worker more productive. And so in terms of um, kind of looking at what's going on kind of legislation wise or, or guidance coming down from uh, official bodies, Tony, is there anything that you think you, you've spotted which may have unintended consequences for either your insureds or the way that your, your policies work? You know, I think that sort of the, uh, you know, obviously with all the civil unrests and the social justice issues, which are very important to to look at and, you know, to try to improve on in a variety of ways, social workers have been brought into that. And with uh, the evolving situation of trying to better 
train the police forces and how they engage in maybe what we call more uh, less nonviolent situations. Social workers have been called upon to help fill that. And the social work community and police officers have had an interesting past. In many instances, social workers would reach out to the police for a ride along if they were going into areas they felt were dangerous. And some of the research shows that one of the biggest concerns for social workers was always safety, personal safety. So in particular in New York, you know, we're just hearing about uh, the governor there trying to move social workers into actually replacing the police in some non-threatening situations. So I think that could have obviously a big impact on the social work community, and we'll have to see how that unfolds. Certainly as an insurance company, it could have an impact on us depending on uh, what happens to the social worker when they're involved in those situations and how the liabilities may change based on what they're doing. What are you hearing from your, your members? Uh, what kind of questions are they asking? Do they have questions about um, their coverage under COVID-19? or Most of it's on uh, uh, teletherapy. And then uh, actually now with teletherapy, uh, some people moving back into in-person how to make that transition, how to make sure they're protected and they're doing the best by their client. So that's mostly obviously questions about if they are you know, found in some way liable for any of the COVID-19. Uh, our policy does cover for that. We don't have any exclusions for that. We haven't seen any incidents of uh, a social worker being sued for that issue. That's good. Well, I imagine then that if that does happen, the, the state and, and federal immunity laws will, will be important to your, your claims process? I would think so. And, and, you know, we try to draw some parallels to, you know, it's very common uh, during hurricane season, for instance, for social workers to come from a variety of other states to, you know, create, uh, to offer their, as first responders help in Florida and Texas and Alabama, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, the market and the states and the regulators have always done a pretty good job of creating a safe environment for people that are running down sort of into harm's way, so to speak, to help. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if if the lessons we've learned from that to help with the supply of people that are badly needed in difficult times, if that can carry over into the COVID situation. Tony, just lastly for you, is there, is there anything that you've been able to do as an insurance company uh, throughout the pandemics for to kind of directly benefit policyholders? Has there been any way in terms of uh, whether it be kind of education or training or or equipment that the captive, the insurance company is able to able to provide? Mm -hmm. well, actually, we did. We obviously we we expanded grace periods. We didn't want to see anybody lose their insurance, even if we didn't hear from them in the in the April through June period. Yeah. a variety of consent forms. We created a volunteer program. So if you were a social worker and licensed and had not been practicing, but decided that you needed to volunteer, and I know some states created uh, phone banks to help volunteer, we would provide coverage for you at no cost. We picked that coverage up. Um, we created a um, what we call a pause in the coverage, which was interesting. And we worked closely with our our DC folks that if for some reason you had to abandon your practice for a period of time, we would pause your coverage. So we wouldn't charge you premium against it. Um, and when you got back actively, we would uh, go ahead and start your coverage. So you didn't lose any premium. Uh, and you were also, there were no gaps in your coverage. Fantastic. That, that's really, really good to hear. And that's one of the benefits, of course, of having a, having a captive or an RRG or similar structure that you can make those decisions with the policyholder in mind as part of your kind of raison d'etre rather than it being pretty driven by other 
uh, external factors. Joe, just just lastly to you, to you all and or Skip, to be honest, is there any other areas uh, directly coming from the pandemic that you have seen impacting upon upon captives? Obviously, Joe, we talked earlier in the year a bit about board meetings obviously being disrupted by by travel restrictions and the pandemic. Has there been anything else uh, that you think is worth touching upon? Uh, I mean, I can tell you one thing that that has got many clients scratching their heads is, is they you know they've asked they've they've engaged their actuaries to look at how the pandemic might affect their risk profile and and and, claim, and you know, claims and um, it's it's proving very difficult to to make that assessment is what I understand you know, we just don't have any sort of you know this is this is this is a, a historical incident without precedent so so the actuaries you know are are uh, are hard pressed to really be able to say very much at all about how this is going to affect claims, um, which is concerning, but, but um, you know, that's what it, it is, what it is. Well, thank you to Joe, Skip and Tony for joining us in this latest GCP short in collaboration with Morris, Manning and Martin. To find out more about our guests and the law firm, please do visit our Friends of the Podcast page on globalcaptivepodcast.com. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.